Today we're in lesson 16 and we're going to focus on civil war. And we're going to focus on chapters 3 and 4. And we're going to talk a little bit about that transition period before David assumes the kingship over all of Israel. At this point, he has become, has been made uh, the king of Judah. And again, I just want to remind you what I said last week. We often assume that when King Saul died, David just became king of the whole thing and everything went on happily ever after. But to be honest with you, First and Second Samuel, as we've already seen in First Samuel, really are reflective about life in general, that things don't necessarily go easy, even though you have the anointing of God and even though you have the promise of God about how things are going to be. There is still struggles in this life, and David is definitely experiencing that. We're going to see that today specifically when we look at this civil war period between the house of David and the house of Saul. So let's get right into our lesson. We're not going to, again, read all of these passages together, but we are going to reference them as we need to as we go along in our survey. So if we start out in chapter 3, uh, the writer wants to make an assessment about this period of civil war. And again, this is not a conflict with Ammon or Moab or Elam or with the Philistines, this is a conflict within the tribes of Judah, which is basically the tribe of Judah versus all of the other 11 tribes, the tribe of Benjamin primarily because that's where the house of Saul is, and the other 10 tribes to the north. So let's, let's get right into our study. First of all, uh, verse 1 really is its own little section. It's kind of an assessment of what's going on. So the writer states that there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. So there was a prolonged action taking place between the house of Saul and the house of David. Now, we know that that period probably is about two years or more. How can you say that, George? Well, remember, when we looked as at Oshibosheth, being made king of Israel, he it says he ruled for two years. He ruled for two years. So this prolonged battle that takes place, this civil war, had to have lasted for the same amount of time, and you're going to see why that is here in a moment. So the writer states that there's this long warfare going on between the house of Saul and the house of David. He also makes a further assessment of what's going on here in verse 1 when he tells us this. As the war progressed, David grew stronger and the house of Saul grew weaker. So as they're going along with this conflict, this internal struggle, this civil war, David's house grows stronger, the house of Saul grows weaker. So then we come really to our next section, which is verses 2 to 5. And so the writer feels that he has to inform us as about David's household and really the expansion of David's household. What do you mean the expansion, George? Well, we're going to see that there are some sons who are born. So the writer states that six sons 
from six wives were born to David while he resided at Hebron. Six different sons from six different women. These are all his wives. They're all mentioned here. While he resided at Hebron. So that means he probably had other children, which we're going to see later on. For instance, Solomon is the offspring of Bathsheba. That's to be referred to later on as we get through this book. But he has six sons, born from six different women. Now, I want you to recognize that there is one other wife that he had, Michal, which we're going to refer to her a little bit later in our study today. She's the seventh wife. So he's got six wives with him. And you say, what's going on here, David? Well, he's a king. And following the manner of kings in that day and in that time, they were polygamous. And so they had more than one wife. We've already seen that already when he took Abigail. He also took another wife as well from Jezreel. So David has six sons. Now, when you look at the list of these names, I think it's very important that we focus on three of them, okay? These six sons included Amnon, the firstborn. He's the firstborn of David. Absalom and Adonijah. Now, Amnon and Absalom we're going to refer to a little bit later as we get into 2 Samuel. Adonijah is going to be referred to at the end of David's life and at the beginning of the reign of King Solomon. And we'll ex talk about that when we get into 1 Kings. 1 Kings. Now, we're going to talk about Abner now. Remember Abner? Abner is Saul's uncle. He's also the one who placed Oshibosheth as the king over Israel once uh, Saul was killed rather than giving it to David. We're going to talk about his rule and his, really his guidance of that northern kingdom and a problem that arises. And so we're going to see that here in this passage. So I want you to notice with me, Oshibosheth confronted Abner about having an affair with his father's concubine. So we already saw earlier than that that the conflict between the two houses, Abner strengthened his hold on Saul's house. Now we get to the place, because he's basically feeling like he has free reign, the insinuation, the accusation is being made here that he had a relationship with one of King Saul's concubines. Now remember, we've talked about concubines before. They are a wife. They are a legitimate wife, although they are a what would be considered a lesser wife. They would not have the full privileges of a full wife, but they could have children, and they but their children would not receive the same promises or the same inheritance as the children of the legitimate wife, the full wife with full legitimacy. So it's a wife. So Abner has an affair with one of Saul's concubines. And Oshibosheth basically confronts him about this because that's not proper. And it also very much expresses really to be messing around with a king's wives, even a dead king's wives, 
is taking upon yourself a role that you really aren't allowed to have. And that's really what Oshibosheth is confronting Abner about. He's confronting Abner about assuming for himself power that really doesn't belong to him. Okay? That really doesn't belong to him. So here's how Abner responds. Okay? He's going to be greatly offended. So Abner protested that he would be accused of this after doing everything for Saul's house. So he doesn't deny it. He just is upset that in light of everything that he's done for Saul's house all these years, and even now for Oshibosheth, that he would even be accused, that anyone would even consider that he would do something like this. So he is offended, okay? Now notice this offense, everyone recognizes that it is a legitimate offense. Otherwise, he wouldn't react it this way. He's, he's basically saying, how dare you accuse me of this? Okay? So he goes a little bit further. He proclaimed, Abner proclaimed, that he would do everything he can to transfer the kingdom to David. So now the tide has turned. Abner is saying, okay, you're accusing me of this. I've done all this for you. I'm now going to do everything I can to make sure that David is king. I'm going to give him the kingdom. It rightly belongs to him. Now, it also says very clearly what kind of strength Oshibosheth has. So Oshibosheth did not say anything more because he feared Abner. He was afraid of Abner. This is his great uncle, if you remember that. This is Saul's uncle. Saul's son would therefore be a great nephew to Abner. So this is his great uncle. And he's fearful. So that tells you what kind of power really Abner has. And that really kind of tells you who's really been behind this whole civil conflict with David. It hasn't been a Shibosheth. It's been really Abner. Okay, Abner. So the text goes on. By the way, folks, what we're seeing in this chapter is the political shenanigans that are going on right now. These are the political shenanigans that are going on with the house of Saul, and we're going to see even with the house of David. So Abner sent word to David seeking to enter into a covenant to bring the kingdom to David. So Abner sends word, somehow he probably sent a messenger and says, hey, I am ready to give you the kingdom, let's enter into a covenant, let's enter into an agreement, okay? Let's enter into an agreement together. Now, David agreed, okay, let's do this, but there's a sticky issue that needs to be resolved. So David agreed, but required that his wife, Michal, be brought with him. So David is saying, okay, we're going to settle this, but there's something that needs to be handled, and that is, I have a wife who was betrothed to me, and uh, that's my wife, Michal, and she was given to another. When you come to make this covenant, I want my wife back. I want my wife to come back to me. Sounds legitimate. It's really a legitimate thing. So 
here's what's interesting, okay? So when you read the text, the text tells you then that David then sent messengers to Ashibosheth that he wanted his betrothed wife. And David makes it very clear, this is his betrothed wife. He was required to pay the price of a hundred piece body parts from the Philistines for Michal. That's what he did. He actually doubled it, if you remember the text. Rather than 100, he killed 200 to gain this wife, whom he loved, who loved him, if you remember the text, Michal. And remember, when David ran from Saul, Saul did what? Saul then gave, which he could do because he was the father, and that's how their culture was, still is that way in a lot of cultures today, gave his wife to another, to another. So here's what happens. Ashibosheth then took Michal from her husband. Can he do that? Yeah, he's the king. He could do that. He basically took his sister from her current husband, basically took her from him. Well, the text goes a little bit further and tells you that this isn't like an easy thing at all. Because the text then tells you that her husband followed her weeping until Abner commanded him to return. Go back to where you're from. This is over. Quit crying. We're moving on here. And that's how abrupt, that's how devastating all of this is. And she goes with Abner. The husband goes back weeping to his house in the loss of Michal. Wow, pretty brutal, but that's what the text is telling us here. That's what the text is telling us. Now, of course, before this all takes place and Abner meets with David, <clears throat> Abner talks to the elders of Israel. Okay, so he also communicated with the elders of Israel about making David their king. And I think it's very, very interesting what you find out when you read the text. When you read the text, it very clearly says that uh, David, that Abner is basically, excuse me, that Abner is telling the elders that this is something that they wanted to do before. Look with me at verse 17 of chapter 3. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. All right, so this is obviously something that the elders of Israel have communicated with Abner about before. Probably when Saul had died, they were probably saying, we want David to be our king. And of course, he refused to do that. Why? Because he made Oshibosheth the king. So now when you come to verse 18, he says, now then, do it. So now Abner, because he's mad at Oshibosheth, says, all right, make him your king. He's telling the elders to make David the king. Wow. Again, political things happening here, chapter 3. So in his communication with the elders, Abner acknowledged the promise made by the Lord concerning David as king. So he acknowledged the promise. You see that verse 19, excuse me, verse 18. For the Lord had spoken of David saying, by, my ha by the hand of my servant, 
I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. So he's telling everyone, including his own tribe of Benjamin, from which Saul is from. He's acknowledging what everybody knew. See, this is what blows my mind. Everybody knows that David is to be anointed the king and he's supposed to, has been promised to be the one that would lead them to victory, but they're not allowing him to be king because of political stuff. That's life, isn't it? Even though we know what God wants us to do, even though we've been told this is what God wants us to do, it doesn't happen like that sometimes. Now, it's not like God's not in control. God uses that, though, for his purpose. And we're going to see that later. We're going to see that later. So when Abner meets with David, he goes down to Hebron. Abner told David that he would gather all Israel together to make David king. He told Abner, Abner basically says, look, I'm going to gather all of Israel. And again, we've seen this before. Where would they gather? Like Mizpah, gather for a whole gathering of the clan. They did this once before when they made, what, Saul king. Abner is basically saying he's going to gather all of Israel together in a congregational meeting and make David the king. Okay? David the king. And so they agreed to do this. So now the chapter is going to change and it's going to turn tragic because you're thinking, wow, everything's going good now. We're moving to the place where David will become king. What could go wrong? Everything could go wrong. And it kind of does. So the, the chapter then moves to what happens now is, is that as David sent Abner away, Joab returned from raiding with much loot. So we see that David and Abner part. They made a covenant with each other. This is going to happen. Everything's an arrangement that uh, David's going to be made king now. And as he's leaving and riding off into the sunset, heading back to where he's heading to in Benjamin, here comes Joab returning from out raiding. Of course, they would continue to do this, raiding their enemies and bringing back the loot for David and the kingdom and for the warriors. Joab hears about Abner being there. Now, here, remember now, remember, Joab, because we looked at this last week, is upset with Abner because Abner killed Joab's younger brother. And so there's a blood feud going on here. So Joab goes to David. And so Joab protested Abner's presence and accused him of spying on David. He goes to David and says, what are you doing? Why is this guy here? You know he's not here to do what he says he's here. He's only here to see what your weaknesses are. He's only here to spy you out. Which that might be a legitimate concern, but we understand why Joab is doing that. He wants Abner's head. He's upset that Abner wasn't dealt with, that he was able to come into Hebron and nobody dealt with him. So what goes on then is that without David's knowledge, Joab 
then sent word for Abner to return to Hebron. So Joab takes it upon himself that he's going to settle this. He doesn't tell David anything. David isn't aware of anything that's happening. So he sends word to Abner, who is making his way back to Benjamin. Hey, turn around. You need to come back to Hebron. And of course, Abner does that. So here's what happened. Abner shows back up in Hebron. Joab took Abner aside privately. I need to talk to you. And killed him for the blood of his brother. Basically stabbed him in the side, killing him. Pretty brutal. And what was, being hap what was happening here is what they call blood vengeance. Remember, the law called for an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It called for the exacting of vengeance. And this was a right that Joab had because Abner had killed his what? His brother. This exists in many parts of the world even to this day. The right of retribution. And that's what Joab is doing. Now the problem is, listen guys, the problem is Joab has no clue about what's going on, what's been set in motion. Because up to this point, everything was set in motion now for David to become king. Abner was going to call, remember? Abner was going to call the nation together at Mizpah, probably, and, and have a congregational meeting, and they were going to make David the king. But all that now is thrown into upheaval because the guy who's supposed to set this all in motion has just been murdered by David's right-hand man. Things don't go easy, do they? It's kind of like life, isn't it? All the best laid plans there are, and somebody throws a wrench into the monkey works. That's what's happening here. Now, what we see happening then at the rest of chapter 3 is how David responds to this. And what we see again is, is that David is very wise in how he handles this. And we're also going to see at the very end of chapter 3 a dilemma for David that would follow him the rest of his life. Okay, here we go. So when David heard of Abner's murder... He proclaimed that he and his kingdom are guiltless. So first thing that happens when he hears that Joab has killed Abner, what does he do? He makes a proclamation and says, this murder, this slaying of Abner is not on him and not on his kingdom. We had nothing to do with this. That's the first thing he's doing here. Here's the second thing he does. He proclaimed that the guilt rested on the house of Joab and cursed their house forever. He's basically laying the responsibility of Abner's death right at Joab's feet and on the sons of Zariah and says that they are the ones who are responsible for the killing of Abner. They are the ones who are responsible. I have nothing to do with this. They are the ones who do it. And so then he pronounces like a curse on them. May their house be marked with lepers. It's a curse he's basically giving. He's basically pronouncing judgment on the house of Zariah for what they did. 
Now, what happens next is amazing. And it's almost kind of hard to bear to think of Joab having to do this, but he has to. What do you mean, George? Well, David then had Joab and the people tear their clothes, so it's a sign of mourning and outrage, sign of despair, and put on sackcloth to mourn Abner. So basically, he had all of the people enter into a period of mourning. In fact, the text makes it very clear that David made Joab do this. He's making the guy who murdered Abner mourn. And you're saying, well, Joab would do that? Yes. Why? Because, remember, David is the king of Judah. And you do what the king says. And he made Joab mourn. And as they buried Abner in Hebron, David openly wept for Abner and sang a lament for him. So basically, David openly is mourning and weeping the death. He's basically expressing in a very vocal way his despair and his mourning for the loss of Abner. He would have known Abner. He would have, remember, he was at the king's table. He knows Abner very well. And he composes a lament for him, and the scripture will give you that lament. Now, the text then goes on and tells you that David's actions here, from the proclamation that his kingdom is not to be guilt, be held guilty for the death of Abner, pronouncing it, putting that guilt on the house of Joab and uttering a curse on the house of Joab, plus his actions in publicly mourning and calling the people to mourn Abner. All of those things were a very wise thing to do. Why? The people were pleased by David's actions and understood that he was not involved. The people were very pleased by David's actions and understood that he was not involved. That's what we see here. That's the point I want you to, to grasp as what we're seeing here. Now, we move on then to where David speaks privately with his servants. This is where I need to explain something to you. I want you to notice what David says to his servants. It's really in the last part of chapter 3. Then David, verse 38, the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? That's not what I want you to focus on. I want you to focus on verse 39. And I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zariah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. What is going on here? What is David saying he's weak and that these sons of Zariah are harsh with him? What's going on here? He's the king. He could deal with this. What's happening? Well, let me give you the point and I'll explain some things to you that you might not be aware and then you understand the dilemma this is the dilemma I was telling you about that David finds himself in. And it's a dilemma that he has the rest of his kingship. And David proclaimed to his servants 
that he was weak and did not know how to punish Joab. That's the issue that's going on here. He doesn't know how to punish Joab. Now, you're probably sitting here saying, what do you mean he doesn't know how to punish Joab? He's the king. Just pronounce judgment. Execute the guy. Deal with him. Well, it's not that easy. Why? Well, because they're the sons of Zariah. So what's that got to do with anything? Well, maybe you need to understand who Zariah is. Zariah is the half-sister of David. These are the sons of David's sister. These are his nephews. They're his family. Now do you understand the dilemma? Now do you understand why he just, with anybody else, boom, drop the hammer, deal with it because of what happened? These are his family. And that would be a dilemma for David the rest of his kingship. And we're going to see that as we go along in 2 Samuel. Now, I can say that's a dilemma because when we come to chapter 4, we're going to see that when it comes to somebody else murdering somebody, David deals with it immediately. What do you mean? Well, we come to chapter 4, and we're going to deal with the death of Ashibosheth, or I should say, the murder. Okay? The murder. Now, when you come to the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, when Ashibosheth heard that Abner died in Hebron, he lost heart and Israel was troubled. So, up to this point, Ashibosheth has been doing okay. Why? Because really the strength behind his reign has been Abner. Abner is the one who set him up as king. Abner is the one who has allowed him to function as king. And now Abner's dead, murdered. And who knows what he heard all the way back wherever he is in Ramah or wherever he is in Benjamin. The fact of the matter is he's realizing, oh no, the guy who's been guiding me through all of this is dead now. Yeah, we had some kind of disagreement but he's dead. He's murdered. Murdered by somebody in David's case. And so he's, he's troubled. He's fearful. Well, not just that he's lost heart. Now it says all of Israel is troubled because they, they're the ones who got the news from Abner that we're going to make David the king. Now at the hands of David or supposedly at the hands of David's men, Abner is killed. So they're all troubled. That's how chapter four begins. It goes on a little bit further now. The writer points out, you wonder why it does this at first, the writer points out that there were two certain captains from a certain clan in Benjamin. So now the text moves to telling us about these two captains of troops. And they're from a certain tr clan within the tribe of Benjamin. It goes into great deal describing who these guys are. Now, kind of as a side note, I don't know why the writer puts it in the text here, but the writer then shifts to talk about another relative of Saul who is the son of Jonathan. So the writer tells the story of Jonathan's son, Mophibosheth, and who was lame in his feet. And it tells you how he was lame when Saul was killed. The nurse had the young boy, 
and fell in some way and it lamed Mephibosheth, who is the um, son of Jonathan. Now that's going to be referred to a little bit later in our text when we get through 2 Samuel, but it's only mentioned here. It doesn't have anything really to do with what's happening in chapter 4, but it is mentioned here that there is another relative of Saul. Now, after telling us about Mephibosheth, it goes on now to tell you, get back to these two captains, and it tells you that they sneak into the palace and they kill Oshibosheth. So the two captains killed Oshibosheth on his bed during the day and beheaded him. Now, why would he be on his bed during the day? Well, remember, these are the tropics. This is the desert climate. And at the heat of the day, even in some cultures in our world today, they would take a rest period during the day and rest during the heat of the day because you really can't do anything. So while the king is resting, these two captains sneak into the palace, kill him on his bed, and behead him. They then took his head and fled. You're like, what? They killed him. What are they doing? They then take his head and flee over the plains, is what the text tells you. Why? Well, chapter 4 tells you why. Because they're on their way to David. So the two captains brought the head to David proclaiming that the Lord has avenged. In fact, what they proclaim is, I think it's very interesting, look at what they say when we look here. Verse 8, Here is the head of Oshibosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life, and the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. So they bring Oshibosheth's head to David, say, he's, you're avenged! God is avenging you! Like they've done a great thing. Okay? I think they thought they were going to be sitting pretty well with this action. But David quickly informs them that things aren't going to go well for them. Because he executes judgment. He brings justice for Oshibosheth. Which, may I remind you, David knows who he is and has probably personally interacted with him. So if you notice the rest of the text now, David tells them about the execution of the Amalekite who brought news of Saul's death. So David tells them, you know, there was a guy who brought me news of Saul's death who basically was saying to me that he killed the king. So he's telling them of this news. This happened because the Amalekite thought he would be rewarded. Basically, he's saying to these guys, guys, this is kind of like the situation with the guy who came and told me about Saul's death, that he killed Saul, thinking that I would reward him, which is what you're doing right now. Which is exactly what you're doing right now. He stated, how much more will he execute judgment on those who killed an innocent man. I think the text uses the word righteous man. Now, I want you to stop for a moment because there is a little bit of difference with chapter 4 verses 
the beginning of chapter 1 when the ex judgment is executed on the Amalekite. When the judgment is executed on the Amalekite, David makes it very clear that he is being executed because he lifted his hand against the Lord's anointed. He referred to Saul as the Lord's anointed. Now when you come to chapter 4, he's referring to King Oshibosheth. But notice he doesn't refer to him as the Lord's anointed. He is not king because he was anointed to be king. He's king because Abner made him king. But he's, he is saying that Oshibosheth is a righteous man, an innocent man, and you murdered a righteous, innocent man. Therefore, you are being judged. Now, why the difference here? I think the difference is, is because David knows that Saul was anointed to be king by Samuel, by the Lord, and if there is a king who has been anointed to be king now, that's who? David. But he's acknowledging that Oshibosheth is a righteous man. So he executes judgment. So David commanded that they be executed and that their handless bodies be hanged in Hebron. David commanded that they be executed and their handless bodies be hanged near Hebron. So what's going on here? He's having them executed, but not just executed. This time he has their hands cut off. Why their hands cut off? Probably in retribution for the deed that they did in killing the king. And their bodies were to be hung as a public statement by the pool in Hebron. Why the pool? Because the pool would be a place where everyone would gather for water, for washing. So everyone would see it. Why is he doing this? Well, again, he's wanting it to be sure that he has nothing, no one can say that he had anything to do with the death of Ashibosheth and that he has executed the perpetrators of this, and that he is king. But he's king because the Lord has anointed him, not because of political shenanigans. Therefore, we come to the end of chapter 4. Wow, this is an amazing thing. So David then buried Oshibosheth's head in Abner's tomb in Hebron. So he took the head, and buried it in the tomb with Abner. And that ends chapter 4. Now, next week, we're going to get into chapter 5, as well as into chapters 11 through 14 in First Chronicles. Now, what are we going to do there? Well, we're going to look at David becoming king, and David taking Jerusalem. But First Chronicles also tells us and lists for us the deeds of David's mighty men. Because you need to understand, David, yes, he's anointed to be king. Yes, David is a righteous king, and he's doing what's right. But David also has with him men who are his support, men who love him dearly and will do anything for him. And so the text will tell us that as well.